Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello and welcome. For this episode, we're delving into the topic of education and automation. This is actually the second of three interviews that we're putting out over the next few months, all with different experts interested in the rise of artificial intelligence and other forms of automated decision making. So today I'm talking with Frank Pasquale, a law professor from Brooklyn Law School, who's perhaps best known for his work on law and regulation issues thrown up by AI, robotics, algorithms and platforms, particularly in terms of health law and information law. But the main reason for talking to Frank today was to go through some of the issues that he talks about in his New Laws of Robotics book from 2020. For me, this is one of the most interesting books on AI, algorithms and robotics over the past few years. And he spends a lot of time talking about educational issues and the rise of AI in classrooms. So given that education plays a fundamental role in the book, I wanted to get Frank's thoughts on the specific issues relating to the automation of education. In contrast to the book's other discussions of healthcare, medicine, journalism, defence and other areas of society. So first off, I asked Frank to compare the interest in his book so far across these different domains. Which professions did he feel were picking the book's arguments up most? And what reaction, if any, was he getting from people in education? I've been certainly getting a lot of attention and requests to uh, speak uh, to audiences about the medical side. Because I feel like that's very visceral to people and it seems like it's coming up very quickly, um, both on the side of physical health and on the side of mental health. And I think on the side of physical health, there's been a real urgency with the idea that there could be failures in the representativeness of data and that there, the system of AI and machine learning could be as biased as the healthcare system is against a lot of marginalized uh, groups. On the mental health side, what I've really enjoyed is the discussion about the nature of conversation and the nature of uh, meaningful human interaction and whether a bot can provide that or not. And, you know, and, and I think the, the final part of this where I think the education, where the, where the, I'm sorry, the, the medical side of this has really picked up steam is because of the professional model. Um, I really emphasize in the book a lot the idea that the AI should be developed as really intelligence augmentation for professionals in many of the fields that we've described. And I think that in medicine, the idea of professionalization is very far advanced. I think in some of the other fields, there's less of an identity of um, uh, via professionalization, although there's still an identity, but there's, there's less of a, of a sense that there's a self-organized group of workers who can control entry to the field and in other ways um, uh, develop standards for the field. So I think that's, that's where it's been going. But certainly there's been interest on all the levels, on, on finance and the military and, 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 and education as well. But it fascinates me that education is sometimes a bit slow to pick up on these issues. I mean, you talk about visceral nature of, you know, working with children and you know our children education is quite an emotive area certainly an area where people kind of value conversation and human interaction and is certainly an area where there is a professional entity i mean why is it why do you find education perhaps a bit slower than say medicine or law to pick up on these issues around tech and 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 the changes that are happening through tech well i have to admit i i can't claim to be to have kept abreast of all of the literature in in the educational area so i don't know if i I, but i I trust you i trust your characterization of the premise which is to say that you know because i know certainly your work and you know and, and paul prinsloo and ben patrick williamson and audrey waters you know are all people who i 
I've deeply admired in the, in the educational field sort of picking up on this. I think that, you know, in, in considering, and I think that from a neoliberal managerialism perspective, there is a lot of emphasis on automation as potentially increasing access while reducing costs. And you know, I, I highly question whether, whether that sort of free lunch can actually be achieved. Um, I think that they're on the level of both students and teachers either trying to find more applications of automation or trying to regulate them. Perhaps it just is a little too far out in the future. You know, it reminds me of, of how at Google, they used to give people 20% time. So if 20% of their time they could assign to a project that they thought was of long-term importance. And I think that's part of the reason for the company's success today, although it certainly is, I think it's given up on that policy. But but I, I think that if, if we had an education, something like this 20% time, where people were able to, where, the, where teachers and other professionals were able to read in the area, uh, experiment, uh, think further out, you know, I think that would be a great thing. And I think it would lead to more focused and um, uh, concentrated and effective efforts to shape the future of the technological adoption. Because I think there will be a lot of new technologies adopted. And, you know, I talk about some of the, the more avant-garde in the book, but I think that there, there would be a lot more adopted and a lot more critique and um, analysis of the existing ad- adoptions if people had more time. No, you're absolutely right. And education is certainly an area where people are very pressed for time, their time poor. So, I mean, just to kind of roll back a bit, you're right. We need to kind of contextualize this uh, this area. What, Not specific to education, but what are the general forms of AI and automated decision-making and, and other kind of bots that you cover in the book? What specific technologies did you find particularly kind of interested or illustrative of, of this type of technology? Yeah, you know, I think that the there's a few different levels. And I would I would think first about the um, robot as a entity in the world with sensors and actuators and able to sort of wheel around and sense things and, and react and process the information. That's relatively uncommon in our everyday experience. It's becoming more and more common within factories and warehouses. The real cutting edge of AI that is being deployed now, uh, I would categorize into at least three categories. One being reputational AI, AI that evaluates how well a person has performed and projects into the future how well they're likely to perform um, in a variety of areas. And certainly education is is one of those where evaluation is a big part of the task of, of teaching. The second is in search and in helping individuals make sense of the world and understand the world. And in chapter four of the book, I'm particularly interested in the in the educative or maleducative function of the mass media, where you have, a, a, and, and I, I call out in the book that the media and finance really are the key industries where automation has gone the furthest in terms of, of, of mental processes. You know, I, I've set aside the manufacturing and other things, uh, but I think in, in media and in finance, there's just enormous interest in an application of automation often to very bad ends, um, you know, at least with respect to media. And I think that in finance, it's just accelerating a lot of um, uh, trends that were already pretty extractive and not very constructive. Um, so there's a reputational algorithms, search algorithms, and finance algorithms that I think are really key here. And and then finally, I should also mention government decision-making. I'm, I'm actually part of a, a group, this automated decision-making network in, in Australia that is looking into these topics and um, uh, tr- commenting on Things like RoboDebt, um, and which is a pretty poor implementation, um, but other potentially more positive implementations of automated reviews. I mean, certainly 
a lot of people get caught up in, say, benefits bureaucracies, wish that there were a way that their uh, applications could be automatically approved, right? And so if we thought to think about that, that is a real promise there. But all of these are sort of topics that I think are really on the horizon in, in, in many of these areas. Yeah, and it's interesting you talk about having stuff that's kind of in your face and kind of of the moment. And RoboDebt was certainly something which captured the Australian imagination and kind of pushed people into talking about what we should do about this. And I thought just before we move on to the education aspect of the conversation, what the general pitch for your book is in some ways is around these ideas of four new laws of robotics. And I just before we talk about the education side of it, can you just give us the general pitch for the kind of core concerns that you have and and where you hope these new four laws might take future discussions of AI? Yes, absolutely. You know, and, and these are these are an effort to bring into the present and to uh, bring a political economy perspective to the ethical laws that Isaac Asimov pr- proposed. He had you know three laws of new law, three laws of robotics uh, proposed in 1942, which are you know hugely influential among a lot of the technology um, leaders in the area. And so I wanted to add, to add four more. And the four that we start with, um, that in most, place, most uh, situations, AI and robotics should complement rather than substitute for professionals. So I try to develop a theory of what a professional is, um, uh, the types of labor where we expect the individuals there to exercise judgment and to take on a fiduciary role and to take some um, self-governance mechanisms to um, guard entry into the profession. And I think that there, this is a really important area of work. It's becoming more and more important. The boundaries are, of course, contestable. But I think it's an area to, to guard from the substitution uh, of AIs for human judgment. The second is to avoid counterfeiting humanity. And what I mean by that is not necessarily to stop any robots from looking like humans or being humanoid, but rather to keep them from trying to fool people into thinking that they are humans or should be treated like humans. Right? And that, I think, is really important. It, it, in a way, flies in the face of the entire affective computing agenda, because there's a whole agenda in uh, human-computer interaction and AI research that says, ah, we should make the robot as much like a human as possible in interacting with it. And I, I go in the exact opposite direction. I say that you know, we should always be aware that we're dealing with a machine that has all manner of influences and powers that are often hidden to us and that are extremely opaque and hard to understand, and that this is uh, an, exor- an occasion for caution and not for comfort um, and complacency. The third is to uh, stop arms races, because I think so often in AI you see um, an arms race develop where one entity gets form of technology and then the other tries to outdo it. That's most obvious in pol- military and policing. You know, if, if uh, China gets killer robots, then America needs killer robots. And then if they get killer robot deflectors, then we've got to get the same thing, etc. That's very worrisome to me, you know, uh, that that so those um, uh, arms races could occur. Of course, it's probably the U.S. that is starting the arms races rather than uh, <laughs> retaliating. But in any event, you know, there's there's room for uh, blame all around. And then finally, the fourth new law of robotics is to require attribution. And that is both a simple and a complex task. Simple, you could just analogize it to a car needing a license plate. You know, we don't allow people to just drive around in unmarked cars and do all sorts of things in them. We, we think it's a relatively important privilege to drive, and we want to trace back every car to an owner. But secondly, this attribution requirement unravels the entire dream of autonomous general intelligence, right? So if you have people that want to create AIs that are entirely autonomous and just sort of do their own thing in the world... I don't want that to happen. <laughs> I want that there any AI that's out there, any drone that's flying, any sort of sidewalk robot, car, etc., 
has to be tied back to a person, and certainly any bot online. And there is legislation actually in California to require the disclosure of whether something is a bot. Um, and I hope that it goes further to require who owns the bot to be disclosed as well. Um, but I think that there's, there's those laws, I think you put those together and, and to just summarize them, they really come down to um, complementarity. The second law uh, with respect to uh, non-counterfeiting, not counterfeiting humanity, anti-arms race, and finally attribution. You know, and I think those four laws together are really important foundations for technology regulation. They certainly don't answer very specific questions about it, but they provide broad principles that then I sort of uh, work out and apply in the rest of the book um, to, to look at particular dilemmas. But they also raise really interesting questions and concerns. And I think that's what's most valuable about those laws in some ways for an education audience is they suddenly raise a whole bunch of issues that people don't normally think about and I think are really, really important. And to kind of drill down now then to the, the specific domain of education, I'm really interested to kind of explore how those logics and concerns play out. You mentioned the fact that actually you cover some avant-garde technologies in the chapter on education. And, and a lot of these technologies are not kind of mainstream, but I think they're becoming used enough to merit being talked about by educators. What specific avant-garde technologies did you come across in classrooms, in schools, in universities that kind of surprised you or kind of made your ears prick up when you were writing the education chapter? What kind of automations are we talking about here? Yeah, I mean, I think one of them that really uh, I, I lead off with is the example in a Chinese classroom of a program called Class Care. And Class Care involves a camera in the back of the classroom or in the front of the classroom that is looking at each student's face and that is taking a picture either one minute or one second, depending on the company contract to do it, and then can use those pictures of faces to rate the student's level of engagement, um, assign them one of five affective states, uh, and then rank those states and uh, give points, say, for those that are the most engaged, uh, report back to the teacher and to the parents about how engaged their children are, and then also aggregate point levels for classes or even for schools and rank the classes in the school about, you know, rank the students and then rank the classes. <laughs> and I think that was quite remarkable, you know, to think that, and, and it, what, what is, I, I think that's, uh, there's so much to say about it. One, one thing to say about it is that, that it's the dark side of soft skills, right? We hear so much, I think, from the OECD, other areas to that, where their, their vision of, a, of human proofing or enabling there to be human, ongoing human jobs in the future Part of that is to emphasize soft skills, but if it's a computer that's sort of drilling the soft skills into you or, or, or making you feel like if you, you are being surveilled to constantly be on guard or on, engaged, engaged and looking, or looking engaged, um, that's problematic. So that's just one. A second one that I think is really interesting is um, there was a tool that Georgia State deployed that was a bot that pretended that it was a TA. And so the students would ask questions, and most of these questions are pretty standard. And certainly I would love to have a bot to answer standard questions. I can't you know, tell how many times I've explained you know, what arbitrary and capricious means in an administrative law context uh, to students. But on the other hand, I think that it's, it's troubling because first, these students didn't know. Uh, so it's sort of an experiment on them. And secondly, that um, each time I explain that, I feel like I get a little bit better at explaining it and I get, and, and the students, and, and I can sort of explain it at a certain level for a certain student or come back to an example that they might be particularly interested in, et cetera. Very hard to imagine the bot really being personalized in that way. Um, and then there are other examples that involve uh, a robot teacher in Japan that was, you know, not a, not a true robot, but it was some, some experimentation in terms of how students would respond to a, a robot that was operated by a person, almost like a mannequin operated by a person. 
how that mediation affects them. So those are three examples, I think, of something that those are all things that are not very common, but that could become templates for much more common technology. But a lot of people selling these systems and perhaps purchasing them would say, you know, what's the problem here? We've always ranked students and classes. Teachers have always kind of looked at students' expressions. We've Teachers have always phoned it in and kind of given rote answers to questions. I mean, okay, you're missing out some kind of stuff around the edges, but fundamentally, you know, what, what's the problem here? Um, you know, schools are not perfect and these technologies are not perfect. Excellent point. You know, and I think that certainly you could argue that uh, in many contexts, any of these would be better than nothing. Right. If there's no one, if the student has a question at 3 a.m. and it needs to be answered immediately, you know, it's certainly better that they uh, use the bot than call a poor TA, you know, at 3 a.m. and then <laughs> and, and wake them up. And I think with class care, I think though with class care, there really is some very big difference though because, um, it, well, well, first I'll say though, just to just to even extend your critique even more, there are, there was a paper that was called Automated Inference of Criminality from Facial Features. And the authors of this paper, after being criticized for it, said, well, look, humans are so discriminatory, whereas our machine has no discrimination in it, you know. <laughs> and it's sort of gliding over the fact of whether it's the, the, the true discrimination is just setting up that machine, right? <laughs> Not necessarily the machine itself. But in any event, you know, coming to the question of class care, the problem, I think, is that this, the teacher is not constantly looking at every student, Right? There's always a bit of micro time off stage to use Goffman's uh, formulation of the need for humans to have time off stage. And I was just commenting on this to some friends you know, about, who, about Zoom versus having dinner with friends and you know, just the phenomenology of it. And there's a wonderful essay by Michael Sakakis called The uh, Theory of Zoom Fatigue, um, which I think was either before or later was, was built. Uh, he, he was commenting on a Stanford study that was a, more rig- that was a rigorous psychological theory of why Zoom fatigue happens. I think part of it is that um, when I was having dinner with my friends to sort of do amateur phenomenology, you know, I, I spend probably 80% of the time looking at the food, looking at the menu, looking at we were on the street, you know, looking at the cars coming down the street, looking at uh, whatever it might be, and then, you know, occasionally making eye contact, etc. With, with Zoom, there's often a sense, and with this class care system, there's a sense of like, well, I can always be in trouble, you know, if I'm not looking engaged enough. And, and I think that's hard, right? Because I think that involves, I mean, there are all manner of systemic distortions and uh, that that could cause and alienation. And I think that, you know, this, this, if, if I had to rewrite the book, I probably would have done a lot more with a revival of the concept of alienation, which I think is a very useful sociological and critical concept, which has, has really been pushed to the side of late, but which I think would be very useful to revive nowadays. And takes you into a whole bunch of other concerns. Well, that's certainly an idea for the next book, at least. And the other thing about Zoom as well is you're always looking at yourself, which you would never, ever do, which is another kind of level of of, of alienation. I guess flipping, I mean, I was being playing devil's advocate there. I think there are clear harms to all these technologies. And I guess flipping it then, most people's initial response is, right, we should regulate these things. These are technologies that need to be regulated. Now, it's great to speak to you as a, as a kind of proper lawyer. You're at pains to recognise in the book that, this incredibly difficult to regulate technology. Can you elaborate on this? You talk about the four horsemen of, of regulation. <laughs> Why can't we just regulate these problems? Oh, yes, yes. I, I'm glad you picked up on that because, yeah, the four horsemen of irresponsibility are really these, these um, and I, I wrote an article actually in uh, uh, the Maryland Law Review a few years ago on this, on this very topic. Um, whenever uh, regulators try to intervene in these information-intensive spheres, 
they face a lot of complications and difficulties. One being the trade secrecy difficulty that I got into in my last book, The Black Box Society. It's often very hard to figure out what's happening because a lot of the companies are just going to tell you, ah, you know, this is a trade secret. If we told you what we were, the way we were ranking students or the way that we're ranking our content, that would, uh, that would give up the most valuable part of the company, etc. Um, secondly, there are exculpatory clauses in contracts. So they ask you to sign terms of service that promise you'll never sue. Um, even worse, promise that you'll, you'll indemnify them if anything goes wrong at all, that you'll indemnify the company rather than them being responsible to you. There's problems of free expression opportunism. That's less of a problem in Australia and most of the world other than the U.S., but certainly in the U.S. If you try to regulate, say, what algorithms can communicate, um, you'll run into the problem of the court saying, well, that's a First Amendment speaker, either the owner of the algorithm or sometimes, I don't know about the algorithm itself having uh, First Amendment rights, but you know, corporations and, and owners have. And you know, so you've got, th those are three. Um, and then you've got just a general trend toward deregulation and preemption of local authorities by um, international or international treaties or national authorities. So all of these make it difficult, right? All of these make it really hard to uh, regulate well. And they do lead us to, to, they lead me to think that there needs to be a lot more investment in the regulatory sphere, um, perhaps paid for by a tax on the new technology, you know, that with maybe a four or 5% tax that would, would go to funding people to actually understand what's going on and to propose and apply common sense regulation. The, the idea of an algorithm having First Amendment rights is, is terrifying. I don't even want to start thinking about that. But it, it does raise the point that we need to be thinking about other ways forward. And, and uh, in, the, in the chapter on education, you do raise a number of suggestions, which I thought were really interesting. I'm not sure how practical they all are. So I just thought it'd be interesting very quickly to rehearse a few some of these suggestions that you had. And the first one was the informed procurement of new technologies by educational institutions and by educators. The idea that education administrators need to be a lot more savvy about how they interact with the firms that are selling these and pushing these technologies, negotiating for control of data and you know how the programs might be revised. I'm really interested to think about your thoughts on how that might work, because that, to me, is a whole different way of engaging with technology than what we've got at the moment in education. It is. And I think that the most detailed plan for accountable AI procurement was probably in a report by the AI Now Institute that was sort of a shadow report written after the New York City Algorithms Task Force kind of punted. And, and, and it was supposed to develop a really strong set of recommendations for conditions before the city bought any uh, algorithmic processes or AI-driven processes, and it punted. So then members, I think there were some members of the committee that just sort of broke off and wrote the shadow report. And as I recall, part of what the um, a strategy for in ensuring more accountable AI is, first of all, to condition the governmental purchase on some basic norms of transparency. Which makes sense because it's part of the government. I mean, the government is supposed to re um, respond to basic freedom of information laws. And so if we've got that, if the AI is becoming part of government effectively, we've got to go in that direction. Another aspect of it is just is to separate out the data going in, the algorithms used to process it, and its results. right? And, and even if the algorithms used to process it, uh, used to process the data in these AI applications are trade secret protected, I think that there is very little sense that like the data should be trade secret protected or that the results should be trade secret protected, right? And I'm actually working on an article now called Five Principles of Reputational Justice, where I say that in any situation where a human being is evaluated uh, by an algorithmic system, trade secrecy should not apply. There should just be a generalized, 
you know, and, and there are constitutional arguments for that as well, although they're, they're more, more um, complex and they, they probably wouldn't work in the U.S. But I think that the basic rights of due process entail not having one's reputation harmed or taken without due process of law. And part of due, and due process is quite a robust concept, right? It involves a, a neutral tribunal, knowing the charges laid against one, knowing the evidence about oneself, etc. And if we started to think about some of these AI systems as essentially operating as judges or in a quasi-state role, I think we would see more clearly the need for these types of transparency and procurement and other, other uh, regulations to ensure transparency and accountability in them. And you also raised the point then of kind of empowering teachers to become what you describe as full partners in the use of technology in the classroom. You're kind of conditioning the teaching profession to have more of a kind of active stance in terms of the technologies that, that they're working with. But again, that, that, that kind of leads me to think of a, a, it's a different level of professionalization, isn't it? It does. It does. And, and I mean, that's a really good question in terms of where, how we create the educational foundation for this, right? Um, there was a big controversy in the U.S. a few years ago about a National Academy of Sciences recommendation that those uh, child, care profession, child care personnel not yet professionals, I suppose, but perhaps professionals, I don't know, um, uh, are, they were recommending that they have at least a college degree. And this was a fascinating battle in the U.S. because you had a real split where there were some individuals, both on the far left and the right, who said, anybody can do this, you know, anybody can take care of a two-year-old. It's just as long as they have a good heart and they're friendly and you know, whatever, let them take care of the two-year-old. And college costs so much and you know, this is a really harming opportunity. But then I think there was a broad center, a broad, and dare I say a technocratic center, <laughs> that would say, wait a second, you know, this is really a very sensitive time in a child's development. Enormous opportunities too. I mean, I, people realize if you don't learn a language before age like five, six, or seven, it is much harder, you know, after that. And there's many other things I'm sure that are analogous to languages. This is incredibly high stakes. And let's make sure that those people are trained as well as possible. And I think that this, I fall very much in that latter camp of saying, you know, having more and more training. And I also think, you know, I hope that eventually we see these educational technologies as being akin to prescription drugs. And just as we probably would not want to, on our own, go to the pharmacy and say, mm, you know, it looks like, uh, you know, my, my heart's beating a little fast. Maybe you can, uh, I'll, I'll take that pill that I, I looked up on Google that said it, it treated tachycardia, right? We know that the pill is quite complicated. There are many interactions that can be caused by taking a pill with other pills, um, that there are, uh, we want to ensure good manufacturing practices at the place that made the pill. All these, these um, ideas about drugs are second nature to us now, but they weren't second nature in like the early 20th century, right? It took battles. It took enormous political battles. Um, it took the book, The Jungle, and the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act of, uh, of uh, Food, Drug, Food and Drug Act of 1906, and the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act of 1938, and the Kefauver amendments to it in the 50s and the 60s, you know, to really set up our modern drug regime. They were being battled every step of the way. And so I feel like that's something that, you know, maybe we're just at the cusp of a similar situation. And I think there's many books that are, are kind of like The Jungle for Technology. I'd, I'd add, you know, Ruha Benjamin's uh, Race After Technology. Kathy O'Neill's book is a bit like The Jungle, you know, saying, hey, look, this is really bad stuff in here. Um, uh, and I think that that is a real goal for me would be to sort of alert people to those problems and then to hope that they have enough trust in their teachers to trust the teachers to engage in 
real due diligence of these technologies rather than just saying, oh, yeah, I can just buy whatever I want off the off the shelf and it'll be the best. And that also leads on to the other um, recommendation you make about education technology agencies, you know, similar to a drug regulation agency. You know, so this could be part of a, a kind of resilient governance structure. So you have these ed- education technology agents that evaluate and license the different technologies that are coming into education systems. But again, you know, talking about the the, the commercial imperatives that you were talking about earlier, um, it, it'd, be, it'd be wonderful to think that could happen, but you could also see how there would be a huge amount of pushback from industry. I mean, how realistic do you think that would be and how could we go about setting that kind of governance structure up? I think that in Europe, there are going to be these sort of structures developed. I, th- I think that in Europe, the EU AI Act will provide a level of structure and guidance for the member states to invest in, if not an entirely distinct education technology agency, at least assuring that there are adequate personnel and existing education regulators to ensure compliance with the Act's requirements. And the Act's requirements are not incredibly burdensome, but they are serious, and they do require certain levels of certification by external bodies of AI to avoid um, uh, potential either consumer or civil rights harms. So that, I think, is an important uh, precedent. I do agree in the U.S. it's, you know, at the federal level, not going to happen. But I think at the state's level, there certainly are some states like New York, where I am, and California, and some others that are going to develop agencies like this. Um, The California Privacy Agency is a great example of of, of an agency that's, you know, stepping out. And certainly China is an interesting case study, you know, in terms of looking at China and um, its ban on private educational, uh, (laughs) you know, and certainly if it can go so far as to ban a massive sector of the education economy, um, I think it would also be um, uh, capable of or or interested in regulations along the line that I've described. Although, you know, I have to admit, like regulation can be a double-edged sword. It can also, it can be used to both promote um, human freedom and it can also be used to put in restrictions that maybe we wouldn't want to see. So with that in mind, you know, I think that there are lots of different um, models out there. And I think that, you know, in in terms of, of the, Pushback, probably the, the entity that would have an, uh, some level of ability to push back might be the teachers' union, right? If the teachers' unions understood um, the technology as potentially replacing them, and not really replacing them, but replacing them in a shoddy way, you know, that's where the argument has to be. I, I don't think that any, any particular uh, worker can say, don't replace me with a machine just because, you know, I deserve a living, right? It has to be the machine you're trying to replace me with is much worse than I am. And here's why it's worse. And by the way, here are why it's very unlikely it will ever get better. Um, or it's getting better will depend on constant interface with me. Um, and I think you can make that case about a lot of the professions. I don't know if one can make that case about a lot of uh, non-professions. And that, that sort of absolutely. drove the book. Yeah, Yeah. no, absolutely. And I think this idea of professions actually standing up and making a case for what they bring to the table, what the added value is of having a human teacher in the room is really important. And unions, uh, I think, are a key, should be a key part of that. Just a couple more questions because we're, we're kind of running out of time, I know. You also focus on the need to acknowledge in and invest in education as a way of better preparing people in general and communities in general for the AI age. Now you talk about you know education having this really kind of key role. And what might this involve um, in practical terms? If we took up this recommendation from the book, how would we begin about having a kind of education that makes people and communities fit for the AI age? It's a tough question. I mean, I mean, my quick answer would be that I think that the um, the, the book by Joseph Ayun, Robot Proof, which is a, a, about education and, um, and, and how he, as president of Northeastern, 
restructured some of the collegiate experience there, I think is useful. I also think Jeanette Wing's emphasis on computational thinking is really helpful. And, you know, I would, I would put some of this computational thinking in very early in one, like in grade school, um, just to get people to think about how do you solve problems the way a computer would. And secondarily, what are the types of problems a computer can solve and what could it not solve? Right. And I think that is a, a really helpful, you know, it doesn't involve necessarily code, doesn't involve, you know, complicated ways of understanding programming languages. It just sort of involves being able to decompose a problem into different subproblems that might eventually be able to be answered in a series of yes, no, and um, statements. Right. You know, and, and, and I think that's a, that's a fascinating question. I mean, I've, I've supervised a few law papers where I asked the student to, um, or I have a student who's interested in automation and they, they just try to boil down a statute into a series of yes-no questions, right? And even though, you know, almost always it fails, uh, it's a wonderful pedagogical exercise to see where, where are the points of failure, where are the points of a necessary human judgment, where not. So those are some ideas. I mean, I do also think that, but I don't want to underemphasize the fact that the folks in STEM, the science, technology, um, uh, engineering, and mathematics, that a huge part of this is giving them a substrate to have conversations with everybody else, right? I mean, I think that, you know, and I've been in too many rooms where someone will say, well, you know, how dare you propose technology regulation? Do you know how to code at a sophisticated level? And I would say, that I would just say right back, well, the whole foundations of my proposals are, um, many of them are based on Charles Taylor's critique of behaviorism and allied philosophy of social science. So tell me what you know about philosophy of social science. And then, you know, because I, I think too often you get that response and people in law and people in the policy realm just shrivel up and say, oh, I can't say anything about this, you know. And, and I think it, it, by contrast, what I love to do is to, you know, train my students. And I have another class called Health Data Analysis and Advocacy where I lead it off, it's about statistical methods in, in legal cases, AI machine learning in um, law and medicine, and uh, quantitative valuation. But I lead it off with Joan Robinson's wonderful quote. And I think the, she, uh, she was an economist in Cambridge um, uh, in the 20th century. And she once said, you learn economics not necessarily to be an economist, but to avoid being fooled by economists. Right. And I think that that's, there's, a, there's a role for many individuals in a society to, to play that role, to at least get to the state where they will not be uh, fooled by it or, or cowed into submission, into assuming that the, the particular thing is right. So I know that's, an, it's a, it's a double-edged response. So it's sort of, uh, I think that simultaneously, I want to see more computer literacy and computer science literacy and coding literacy. But I also want to see uh, the bridge building for those that are going into those STEM fields. Yeah, so it kind of broad interdisciplinary education, liberal arts, STEM for everybody. I think that, that that's that's a really good uh, really good uh, way to go forward. I guess just finally, I mean, where do you think this is all going? You work in a university. Where do you think universities are going to be going in 20 years' time? Where are you going to be working in 20 years' time? I mean, the fundamental structures of education have proven remarkably resilient over the last 100 years in some ways. Do you think this is going to continue to be the case or do you think there is a radical disruption of education just around the corner? Yeah, I don't know. The way things are going now, maybe I'll be um, uh, selling apples after the U.S. Civil War. I don't know. No. <laughs> but I'm just kidding. No. Um, I, uh, or the Second Civil War. Um, but I, I think that the, you know, less uh, facetiously, I do think that the, what's fascinating to me about COVID is it really, to me, the sudden 
shift of everybody into online education was an incredible stress test for the idea that we were moving toward MOOCification or sort of a generalized, and, and even by 2017 20 to 2019, the MOOC thing was, was getting a bit weak. You know, it was, it was getting, it was losing steam. But I think particularly the sense of stress and dismay that accompanied the sort of sudden change to online. And it wasn't just like, and I shouldn't say sudden, by, by the second semester of the 2020-2021 school year, we had a lot of time to figure out what to do. And it still, I think for a lot of people, was pretty substandard. So what that made me feel was that there's something about bringing people together in a university setting, in the classroom, in extracurricular activities, uh, in dorms, in, 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 on a campus, that is really valuable. And I think that the challenge for, for universities you know, going into the next 20 years is figuring out how do you simultaneously maintain that tradition and also bring in the best of technology to make sure that um, we're really maximizing opportunities for our students, right? That I think is the challenge. And, and it's a challenge I wouldn't just say for universities, it goes all the way down to the earliest educational experiences is you've got to figure out like that balance. And I mean, this is a really crude analogy, but you know, some people say, well, nowadays, in an investment portfolio, you've got to have crypto because, you know, cryptocurrency is becoming an access class. I wish it weren't, but it is. But on the positive side, if on the education context, I can see far more justifiably people saying, you've got to be aware of the cutting edge of AI in, in education. And you've got to be able to bring that in and at least to make your students exposed to it to do a good job as a teacher, professor, uh, instructor at any, any level. So I know that's a really vague and broad answer. Um, I, I do think also we'll, we'll see a bit more of like uh, opportunities for hybrid classes, you know, get together, flipped classrooms, those sorts of things I could see, you know, moving forward a little bit more, especially with commuter schools. But those are, those are my, that's my imagination. It's not as bold as I would like it to be. I, I should probably read some science fiction of education and get back to you on this. But <laughs> oh, no, that, That's where everybody goes wrong. That's where everyone goes wrong with education technology. And I like the idea of keeping the face-to-face -face spontaneity, the ability to improvise, the ability to actually be human, but also retaining. And I think one of the things that comes across in your book is the best of AI is perhaps the stuff that doesn't try and counterfeit or replicate the teacher, but does different things. I'd love to see AI that just completely surprises me and does something that I could never even imagine doing as an educator rather than just trying to replicate my own job. So that's a future perhaps worth looking forward to. Well, thanks ever so much, Frank, for taking the time to do this. It's been really, really interesting to read the book, really interesting to actually kind of get you to drill down on the education side of things. And yeah, look forward to reading the next book. Thank you so much, Neil. I really enjoyed the conversation. I, I always learn so much from your work and, and great to be on the podcast. So thanks.